0: That's 919 860 9783. Now, here's Doug, Linda, and Deborah.
1: Investments offered through SFA Inc., investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc., and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. Hello, North Carolina. This is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner, once again welcoming you to Money Matters with the Lewises, Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. And we are the Lewis family. This is Linda Lewis. And this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner.
2: And this is Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner.
1: And we are here tonight to answer all of your financial planning questions. Call us with whatever question is on your mind about your own personal financial issues. Mark? Yeah. Doug Lewis with Money Matters. How can I help you?
3: Uh, Doug, I, got, I want to give you my situation real quick, and I'll try to be brief. I uh, got married about a year and a half ago. Just sold a house from moving out of town, actually out of state. Um, and I've got a uh, got about thirteen thousand in cash. Just got the household, as well as uh, got my yearly bonus. And I'm wondering, you know, I've got a little bit of debt, about five thousand dollars consumer debt. You know, tw- paying twelve percent on it. Um, how do you? How should I? And I also got uh, one car payment. That's only six months away from being completed. And that's it. It's my wife's car. Uh, how should I proceed from this point?
1: How old are you? I'm 26. 26 years old. You married? Right. Children? No, no. Married, no children. Wife working?
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: What's your combined income?
3: Let's see. Uh, I'll make, let's see, 56, about 39, I guess about
1: 95. Ninety five thousand. That's a good income for. You know what you guys are supposed to don't you, Dinks?
3: Yeah, I've heard that.
1: Okay, dual income, no kids, that's Dinks. Right, I've heard that. Okay. Well, for a couple of Dinks that are making ninety five thousand and only twenty six years old, I'd say you could afford to be a little aggressive in building your wealth portfolio. Now that means that you also have a tax problem, and you could go. You could afford. To go ahead and have a maximum leverage on your home. What type home are you going to buy?
3: Well, that's what. Let me let me mention this too. Uh, I'm enrolled in a 401k plan with my corporation, uh-huh. and they're taking six percent of my salary and deferring it, and they match it seventy five cents on the dollar each year. Uh huh. So that that's a fund. I think I put like, uh, oh, I guess it's uh, it'll be about $250, 300 dollars a month this year out of each of my two paychecks.
1: Uh, what kind of work do you do?
3: Uh, I work for a major corporation. Uh, It's it's managerial. Uh, My salary is about fifty six. Probably grow to sixty next year. Uh huh. You know, just just modest.
1: Okay, but you're on a salary, not commission.
3: Well, I'm salary plus bonus. Salary plus bonus. I've made about uh, average about nine thousand dollars of bonuses last. You know what
1: I would do. I would keep your house modest because as soon as you go with a higher price home, that's a bigger home that requires more funding, you're into a higher lifestyle, your wife's going to have to go ahead and see if she can get a new set of china and nice crystal and this and that, and she's got to keep up with the neighbors and so forth and so on. And before you know it, you're running the race that all the doctors are running. You know what I mean?
3: Yeah, and I'm not ready to get in that
1: race. Right, and nobody ever says they're ready to get into that race. But what happens is as soon as they take that first step, they move into a fancy neighborhood, get a nice home, and right away they're at it. I would keep that low, especially if you're in your 20s. And I would work on accumulating wealth. It's a lot of fun to watch it build. Really? Uh-huh.
3: Well, like I say, you, you got my, my current status. I've got about thirteen in cash, uh-huh. and I've got about $6,000 in consumer debt. What would you do? Would you try to pay off that consumer debt, put, put the rest on a down payment, and then just start it, increasing your monthly, uh, If I could, fu- that kind of thing?
1: If I could fund, uh, if I could qualify for a 95% or a 90% mortgage, I'd take it, and I then can. I'd go ahead and try and get a home equity line. I'd move the consumer debt over to the home. And then I'd start. Uh, I'd start building your portfolio because uh, you don't have a lot to start with.
3: How, how can you? Uh, well, I do have a couple of holdings. Uh, I've got a, an IRA that's worth about thirty-five. That's in stocks. It's self-directed.
1: How'd you get thirty-five thousand in an IRA? Uh,
3: thirty-five hundred. Oh, okay. All hundred. All right. And then I've got a. Um, I've got a money market account with a thousand in it and I uh, got about stocks worth you know just stocks that I hold worth about oh, about thousand dollars or so. So I got a little bit of a small portfolio you know just just barely yep. beginning here.
1: Call me at the office 872 That's my office number, 872 7000. Uh, I can pursue it further with you. Okay. Okay. Okie doke. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate your call. You're
4: listening to Money Matters with the Lewises. Doug, Linda, and Deborah on News Radio 680 WPTF. For a consult,
0: call Doug or Deborah Lewis at 919 870 That's 919 USA 7000.
4: The key to investment success isn't information, it's guidance. And this kind of guidance goes beyond information that gives you research and analysis, right? That's that's absolutely right. And it's really that, re, that, info, that guidance that you get from a
2: certified financial planner. And that's what we're here to do tonight, give you guidance as certified
1: financial planners in Raleigh. And if you have a question, give us a call. You know, right now, it is... Amazing how much free advice there is out there today. And uh, I always uh, like to say, if it's free, then you get your money's worth. That's what you got the advice. You get what you paid for. It was worth zero and you paid zero because there's no free lunch. There's all kinds of sources that say, here, you can do it this way for free. You can do it that way for free. But it's your financial future. And a lot of these software programs, a lot of these uh, different attempts to help people do it for free, really are recipes for disaster.
2: They really are. They really are.
0: Have you checked out the website yet? It's DougandLinda.com. DougAndLinda.com
2: Well, Doug, Linda, there was an interesting article about uh, longevity. And as we all know from personal experience, both our family and our clients, people tend to live a lot longer. Yeah.
1: The the amount of longevity that people are facing has changed drastically since I began financial planning. Longevity is really, a, it's a very different type of uh it's a different type of story. It really is. You know, we need to address longevity because more than likely you will live longer than you thought you were going to live. And that's just the way it is. I mean, there are now people that are living to be 100 years old, which we never thought was going to be possible. And statistics tell us that these centenarians are going to be <laughs> doubling that's right. at, at a rapid rate. So, So really... We have to deal with this matter of risk and longevity risk. And the first step in addressing longevity risk is to evaluate just how great the odds are that either you or your spouse will have a much longer than average lifespan. So what are the kind of considerations we've got?
4: There are health considerations. That's right family longevity history That's right. If you have, you know, genes, your family genes are that people live to their 90s or 100 and also employment choices and income level. As that a man- all
1: all maybe factors. Yeah, you're right Linda because all these factors are being analyzed now by surveys and there is one survey that said 40% of adults now estimate their longevity Underestimate. Did I say Uh, estimate? Yeah,
2: and they underestimate. They're
1: underestimating their longevity by at least five or more years. In other words, they're living longer than they thought they were going to live. Right. 40%. So that means we need to really watch out for the mistakes that people make. And I would say there are three longevity mistakes to avoid. Okay. What are those mistakes? Well, I think the first longevity mistake is holding... A portfolio that is too conservative.
2: Okay, too conservative. Does that mean following some sort of a uh,
1: a, ra- uh, a ratio? Well, when people uh, start thinking, "Gee, I'm getting older. I have to be more conservative," right away they start making assumptions based on that, and so they go to all these types of of of, uh, of formulas saying, oh, I should have more in bonds and more in cash. Well, unfortunately, that's the wrong way to go. Okay. That only works if you're getting ready, you know, if you're terminally ill, if you have a very short longevity, then that's one thing. But if you're going to have to live another 35, 40 years, then we need to have investment portfolios that are designed... With that type of growth potential, right,
2: right. So I'm guessing that your advice would be that those concerned about outliving their assets should shade their portfolios more towards equities instead of the stereotypical "oh, if you're if you're in the retirement years, go to
1: bonds." Well, you're right, Deborah. When we say equities, of course, most of our audience now knows equities means stocks, and so the traditional view of the older you get, the less stocks is absolutely wrong. Okay. In a sense, the older you get, the more you should have <laughs> in stock types of investments, such as stock mutual funds. But you should not be thinking about playing the stock market. You should be... I, I would agree with you, Doug, that uh,
4: as as folks uh, are getting older, um, they want to simplify what's happening in their world. But stocks should be
1: A part of the portfolio. And what I'm saying is that not picking the stocks, but picking managers of mutual funds who are investing in stocks. Stock
5: funds, Stock
1: mutual funds should be more and more and more a part of your portfolio the older you get. And that's the first mistake people make. They are going in the opposite direction. So if you have a question about your
2: portfolio, give us a call during the week, 919-872-7000. Another
4: mistake that folks have uh, with regard to longevity
1: is not
4: adjusting withdrawal rate assumptions.
1: Yeah, Lynn, that is such a big problem. You know, just as savings rates, you know, like on CDs and things are the main determinant to success during the accumulation years, then we got another problem as we get into retirement years these are the, what they call the standard uh, withdrawal rate porf- uh, assumptions. The, the most common one is the 4% rule. Right. Now, the 4% rule has been used for a long time that says that you can take 4%, withdraw that from your investment portfolio all the way through, and, and that will last you as long as you live. Well, that's not bad, but that should only be the starting point because- Things change. You need to have a starting point that is able to change as, as life goes on. It's important to tweak your withdrawal rate based on your own living expenses. And
2: I think that's the key. Knowing that the 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 subjectivity of this withdrawal rate is always going to be based on knowing what are your living expenses. And in so many ways, we start often with the conversation being you need to know the living expenses.
1: You know, Deborah, I was thinking recently the biggest objection, not objection, but the biggest... Uh, Maybe uh, the problem people have when they call our office for uh-huh. an appointment and we tell them we want to have five pieces of information sent <laughs> to our office. Yes. The
2: five keys. Right. Just to begin. <laughs> right. And of course, what are those five keys that we want to see? Oh,
4: gosh.
1: Let's we want to look at
4: their tax returns. Right. We want to look at your assets and liabilities. Right. Then we're going to look at your projected income for right. this year. Right. And what is being withheld, or what are your quarterly estimates?
1: And that's the four, but this the fifth one is five the hard one. Is your
4: living expenses? And that's that's right. the one
1: people always that's say. Right. Gee, I don't know what I'm spending. <laughs> so
4: you know, folks will say, "Well, I've got all this stuff." You know what? Do you have all these years you've had these investments, the portfolios, but. What are you spending? That's, That's right. Key, the key
1: factor. That's right. And I was in, I was the, appreciating the other day, Linda. You were not in the office when the client asked this question. You had come and gone. But the client asked a really good question, Debbie. You might remember the question was well. Can you recommend any sort of a oh, a, a good software? <laughs> a good software. I thought it was a great yes. question.
2: And it's funny because um, and, and let, let me uh, just say and then uh, that there are two we have two two um, types of people who um, usually ask that question. The ones who have been keeping no track or they've realized that they need to keep better track after they've been working with us for a while. So yeah, a lot of people
1: ask what are good you know
2: softwares because they want to track those living
1: expenses. Yeah, and of course, you weren't in the office, Lynn, but Deborah took a shot at it. Uh, You'd gone out and come back. But she took a shot. She said, well, I think Linda likes QuickBooks or Quicken. Uh, Deborah took a shot. What about Excel? It doesn't really matter. What really matters is just start tracking your expenses because then we can go ahead and see what is needed for your withdrawal rate for financial independence.
2: And that's the key here in this this, um, article in this article about talking about mistakes to avoid is if you don't know the living expenses in retirement or even pre-retirement to go into retirement, then you're not
4: going to be able to do the appropriate adjusting of the withdrawal rate. And, uh, you know, it's important not to, uh, to to not set and forget your retirement plan variables, such as your spending rate and your asset allocation because retirement progresses and then new information becomes available about what's happening with your health, what's happening with your potential longevity, and what's happening in the market. That's Definitely.
1: right. Life goes on. That's right. That, that mistake, Linda, that second big mistake is to just f- do it and forget about it. That's not the way it works.
4: You know, we have some clients that are, that are in their 80s, in their 90s, and they're still out there just as healthy as can be, mowing their lawns and... Playing a guitar and in the band and and <laughs> just yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and so for some households, the concern is the longer your longevity is, uh, your expenses, what are they going to be as you age? Or if you and your wife both have uh, longevity, Then at some point, your expenses may go up if you have to move into an assisted living because one of you maybe is, uh, you know, early Alzheimer's or dementia, but you still have long genes. So you need to be able to support your needs for healthcare. That's a great example As of those how years progress,
2: right? That's right. That's a great example of how that that you'd have to make that adjustment to the withdrawal.
4: Exactly. You can't just um that 4% would no longer cover that that need. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewises on News Radio 680 WPTF.
1: So we just were addressing the three longevity mistakes to avoid making, and of course, longevity mistake number 1 was holding too conservative a portfolio. Longevity mistake number two was not adjusting your withdrawal rate assumptions. And then the third mistake that I feel people make and they should avoid making is uh, just ignoring guaranteed income like Social Security and pension and things like that. You have to go ahead and have a certain handle on what is a fixed guaranteed income Once you start with there, of course, that's going to be maybe Social Security and maybe a pension. But then from there, you go to what are the expenses that are variable and then you put them together. But if you don't put them all together, you get yourself into some what I call Geico, you know, right? uh, garbage in, garbage garbage out. out.
2: Right. Right. Absolutely. So so if you need some help, uh, fine tuning your own cash flow planning. Give us a call
4: during the week, 919 872 And call the office and leave us a message. We'll be happy to schedule an appointment for you to address your financial planning issues and what you can do to produce income for these retirement years. Let's take another caller.
1: How can I help you, Dan? This is Doug Lewis. Hey,
6: Doug. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I built a vacation house a couple of years ago, and we really enjoyed it. Now we're thinking about possibly selling the one and building another one. But we're in a position where I think we'll end up with about a sixty thousand dollars capital gain. And
1: how much? How much did you? How much are you selling the house for? One hundred and forty. One hundred and forty thousand, with or without mortgage.
6: Uh, it has a mortgage right now.
1: How much is the mortgage?
6: Seventy-five.
1: Seventy-five thousand. Okay.
6: And seventy-five is basically my basis in it. That's about all I can demonstrate is our cost for it. Is there any way that I can end up taking that profit, putting it into one of the trusts, and then allowing it to purchase the next house?
1: No, no. The um, the IRS is very rigid in terms of what a charitable trust can and cannot do. For example, I uh, the guidelines. Some of the guidelines to be aware of are number one: nothing with a mortgage can be in a charitable trust. Okay. Now, I could and I have done this, find ways around that. If we could find another $75,000 in your other assets, let's say to, you know, to borrow against your first home or your investment portfolio to get $75,000 cash and pay off this mortgage, then yes, you could dump the house into the charitable trust and sell it and have no capital gains tax and have the whole $140,000 cash in there. But the second thing that a charitable trust cannot do is it cannot Uh, Run a business, which is not your case, but I guess I need to throw that out. It's called UBTI. It can't run any operating business. And the third thing is once you give an asset to a charitable trust, you have to give up all uses to it. So you can't live in it. Okay. So you can't do that. The best you could do is you could get that $140,000 working for you. Okay. But you can't go ahead and have your cake and eat it too. Okay. Uh, You can get, I mean, that $140,000 can grow in a very, very, how old are you, Dan? 40. 40 years old. Well, you know, you could easily accumulate a couple million dollars inside of that charitable trust and have it be an, an outstanding retirement vehicle for you. Okay. We go ahead and we set them up and we actually let them grow till we want to take them for retirement income because we have none of the problems that retirement accounts have. For example, there's no problem taking it out, bef- taking income out before age 59 and a half. Okay. Number two, there's no problem leaving it in after age 70 and a half. So all those problems are not there. To do it for you, we'd have to find a way to get the debt paid off. Understand. So we'd have to find the, the $75,000
6: then I could conceivably end up using the income off that charitable trust to pay off that additional $70,000 in debt.
1: That's what I was seeing, exactly. Okay. If you want to explore this further, call my office during the week. Uh, My office number is 872-7000, 872-7000. But it's a lot of fun, and you can really work them if you know how. The whole key is you must be your own trustee, or I don't recommend them at all. Never give up control. Okay, thanks a lot. You know, Dan, I I really, yeah, I like Dan's call. I like his whole approach. Uh, He is wise enough to realize that you don't have to go ahead and just pay the taxes. But we need to be careful whenever we try to avoid paying taxes, not to let the tax tail wag the dog. Mm. There are a lot of strategies about tax strategies about avoiding, and we use them all the time. We have done them through the years, whether they're tax-free exchanges of real estate for real estate called Section 1031s, if they are charitable trusts. And then sometimes we just say, go ahead and pay the taxes. But the point is, really, is how to keep control in your hands. You always want to have control. So if you're going to use the charitable trust, have a self-trustee charitable trust or don't go down that road at all. Uh, but I really like the way that he's open to thinking about how to go forward. And yes, when there's a mortgage, we have to deal with it. We got to get rid of that mortgage issue, but there are ways to do that also. So, uh, very Dan, interesting. very, very, very good. All right, Dan.
0: If you'd like to get some answers to your questions, call Doug or Deborah Lewis at 919 919- That's 919-USA-7000.
4: Well, Doug, you've been telling more and more people about the need for a financial roadmap. And what exactly do you mean by that?
1: Well, Lynn, you know, a financial roadmap is really, it's a crucial item. The financial plan itself, a financial plan document is or should be a financial roadmap. And no one would try and take a journey from here to Alaska or here to Uh, Wisconsin without a roadmap the same way you should have a roadmap and the financial plan should be a roadmap that has different style and uh, different planners and so forth. But no matter how it is uh, stylized, it should definitely have at least 13 sections that it covers. And the first section of a financial plan should be your personal data section. It should include all the personal information about you Your kids, your parents, all the personal family data, if you've been married before. But the personal data section should be the first section of your financial plan.
4: Exactly. And each area should be addressed to the extent that it suits a person's personal situation. So uh, along with the personal data, the second element of a financial plan would be a person's goals and objectives. Right, Doug?
1: Right. That's very Um, crucial.
4: People sometimes need to just sit down and think about what are our goals, you know, whether you're married or single or if you're a widow or whatever your situation is. You have certain goals and objectives for your life. So you need to sort of think about those things and have some priority and some Desired time frame.
1: But a lot of people just say, I, I don't know. They've never really put their goals down. Exactly. When do I want to be financially independent? When do I want to retire? What about educating my children? What about my cash flow? What about my, my credit cards? And so forth. Uh, but the third section of a financial plan should be the, the issues and problems section. This section should be an identification of the areas that are problem areas, like college education cost or taxes. A financial plan should analyze the taxes the cost to educate your children, major illnesses in the past, or any other factors that may develop into a problem. Sometimes the client knows them. Sometimes the planner identifies them. But they should be put into a separate section in the plan called issues and problems area.
4: The fourth element of a person's financial plan should be assumptions that are used in the plan preparation. And that would include such issues as inflation, investment growth, mortality rates, and other material assumptions that would be included within the financial plan.
1: Right, Doug? Right, Lynn. For a financial plan to really work as a roadmap, those first four sections, the personal data section, the goals and objectives section, the issues and problems section, and the assumptions section are the ones the plan is built on. Now, starting with the fifth section, we should get into the numbers, and the fifth section should be the net worth section or the financial statement, or the balance sheet of the client. That should be an analysis, which includes all of the client's assets, that's everything they own, all of their liabilities, that's everything they owe, and then a calculation of what they're worth, and it should have different backup schedules to these, and then presumably it should have some comments by the financial planner about how the financial statement looks. What does it look? Does it look good, bad, compared to other people, and so forth? So that's the fifth section of a financial plan, the balance sheet or net worth analysis section.
4: The sixth element or the sixth section of a financial plan should include your cash flow management. And this would include any statements or analysis that describes or details the sources of your income. Where's all your income coming from and where's it all going? What are you spending all this money that's coming in for? This is vitally important within the plan, right, Doug?
1: Well, the sixth section is the most important section to most people, the cash flow section, because this says, just as you said, it's everything coming in that you're making. It's everything going out that you're spending. And whether you have excess or a shortfall, if you have more coming in than going out on your expenses, then how do I invest it? How do I use it to get the other goals met? If I have a shortfall, how do I budget myself to get back in line The cash flow section should have a detailed analysis of the cash flow, and then recommendations by the financial planner.
4: And this is usually the section that really needs a lot of attention for people that are planning on retirement, or young couples that have high income, whatever the problem may be. And some people just don't—they don't ever look at. They know it's coming in, and they know it's going out, and they never track what what's going out. But
1: nobody's ever analyzed the living expenses.
4: Yeah, you need to put the brakes on and, and look at it, right, Doug?
1: Yeah, that's right, Lynn. Now, that's the sixth section. Got any idea what the seventh section would be?
4: Taxes. You're right.
1: The seventh (laughs) section should be taxes. There should be a section on income taxes, Uh which should be an analysis of all the income taxes for a certain period of years that are projected. Uh, In my financial plans, I do four years ahead of time, a four-year projection, but it should be a projection of income taxes. It should show the nature of the income, whether it's fees, commissions, whether it's a portfolio income, passive income, and so on. Uh, And then it should show the marginal tax brackets. And then it should show uh, what ifs and then recommendations, what to do about the income taxes to make sure you're paying the least amount necessary and with the best tax benefits.
4: We're talking about the financial roadmap that most people should address or should look at and the 13 elements of a financial plan document that a person should look for if they are working with a financial planner or thinking of doing so, right? Yeah. The eighth element of a financial plan should include your risk management or your insurance. People need to find out whether or not they're adequately insured. And this section would be an analysis of your financial exposure relative to mortality and morbidity, your liability and your property, including your business if you own one. And it should list and it should analyze your current policies that you have, and problems that may include but may not be limited to the need for life insurance, disability, medical and health insurance, property and casualty, and liability and business as well.
1: Long-term nursing care, all kinds of insurance coverages. Analysis, are you properly insured? Do you have too much or too little insurance? And do you have the right kind of insurance? The ninth section of a financial plan to really work as a roadmap has to be investments. That should be a listing of all the current investment portfolio, uh, which investments you should keep, which ones you should uh, liquidate, reposition. There should be a liquidity analysis of your investment portfolio, a diversification analysis, an investment risk exposure analysis. It should include your risk tolerance, your ability to understand different investments, and all kinds of things in the investment section. That's the ninth section of a good financial plan.
4: The 10th section of a financial plan should include financial independence, retirement planning, and education, and other special needs. People that are working usually have a plan that one day they don't want to be working anymore. They want to be golfing or traveling or whatever. So this section of your plan would be an analysis of the capital that you would need at some future time to provide for your specific needs. And this analysis should include a projection of the resources that are expected to be available to meet these needs at that time. So if it's retirement planning, how much do you need to accumulate to be able to support you at that time of your life? If it's college funding, how much will you need to educate your baby 18 years from now when they start college, right?
1: Very crucial. Yes, to be able to be financially independent. The last section of the financial plan is the estate section. It should identify the assets in your estate, analyze how much taxes are going to be paid or due, on estate uh, at the time that you die? What about probate cost? All the things in your estate and uh, to make sure it's going to happen the way you want it to happen should be in that section.
4: And you now, know, Doug, I-, I wanted to say something here. People may not realize it, but this is this section, the estate planning section, is so important, especially if you're working with an attorney. Right, Doug? Because when you're working with a financial planner that's helping you analyze your estate, your financial planner generally will have the current value of the estate, whereas your attorney may not
1: rarely, know. Rarely do attorneys have any of the numbers. You should never do a financial plan th- uh, estate section with an attorney until you've met with a financial planner first. And they should be a team working together. I will say there's two other sections in a financial plan to work as a good roadmap. One is the recommendation section. It should have clear recommendations for each of the sections. And then lastly, there should be an implementation schedule, in of what to do when. What do I need to implement in each of these sections and then an action list? If these 13 sections are there, then you have a real financial roadmap that will get you to the place you want to be.
4: Write down some of the questions that you have. And certainly if there's anything we can do to assist you with this, we'd be happy to do so. And that number here in Raleigh is eight seven two seven thousand All right, Doug, let's take
1: another call. Hi, Freddie. Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you?
5: I have a uh, universal life policy that I'm paying on and the cash value on it right now is uh, $20,000. I don't have that many debts and uh, I just wondered if I would be better off to cash this in and invest it and take out a, another type policy.
1: Well, how old are you, Freddie? I'm 60. You're 60 years old. You married? Yes. And each, no children living at home, of no course. No children. Okay. Uh, let me see. 60, married. How's your health, by the way?
5: Uh, health is uh, good.
1: Health is good. All right. Now, what kind of assets do you, or first, what kind of income do you have? What's, well, your, what's your income?
5: Right now, uh, we own a, we, we've just sold two businesses, and we've got another business, a store, and our income probably runs around 20
1: to 30,000. All right, so we got 20 to 30,000 a year income and do you have any uh you you have any other income besides just the uh, this income or is it coming from rental or investment income or anything else? Well,
5: I do have uh I have IRAs and some investments, but I don't take in other words I just reinvest it.
1: Oh, you're not living on 20,000 a year.
5: Um it's probably up close to $40,000. Uh,
1: all right, well, let's take a look at your assets. Maybe that'll help me answer your question. What do you have in the way of assets? You say you sold two businesses. What did you sell them for?
5: Uh, I sold one for uh, $75,000, mm-hmm. the other one for
1: one
5: hundred
1: and All right, and what did you, and where, what'd you do with those, with, with those funds?
5: Uh, I'm going to invest them.
1: All right, so tell me about your investment portfolio. Um. Uh,
5: my wife and I together have probably uh, close to two hundred thousand.
1: Two hundred thousand. Now, that's not including IRAs, is it?
5: Yes, that's IRAs and investments.
1: All right. Uh well, is it mostly mutual funds?
5: Uh it's stocks and Jenny uh, Mays and so forth.
1: Hmm. It doesn't look real good, but let me ask you the question of the insurance. How much is the death benefit on the on the universal policy?
5: 100,000.
1: 100,000 death benefit. The way to approach this is first of all to find out what would be the the need of your wife if you were to die. So we need to know her living the living expenses that she needs. So if you're spending about 40,000 a year right now for the two of you, Maybe her expenses would be you take maybe forty thousand times seventy-five percent. Maybe her expenses would be thirty thousand a year. And then you come down and say, Well, could my investments produce thirty thousand a year? And if all you have is two hundred thousand, the answer to that question is no, because the most two hundred thousand dollars is going to comfortably produce for you, for her would be about fourteen thousand a year income. So if there's no other uh, income and no other assets, then your wife definitely needs some insurance protection. Uh, and I'm not sure 100,000 is enough to tell you the truth, because let's say you did die, and there's 100,000 that would come to her, plus the 200, that's 300,000. Well, 300,000 is not going to give her 30,000 a year. You see what I'm saying?: Right. So the first thing is, I think if these are all the facts I have, you're underinsured. You need more insurance, not just getting rid of this. And then the second question would be, is there a way that you can get more insurance and pay less than you're paying now? Um, I don't know without any tables around or any uh, rate books in front of me or anything, uh, because you're right at that age where uh, term insurance can be expensive. But I would check something like a 10-year level term policy. What's your premium on the $100,000? i am
5: paying $100 a
1: month. You're paying 100 a month, 1200 a year. It may be that you could do better, that you could get more insurance for less than what you're paying now and get out the $20,000. One strategy to look for, there'd be two ways to do it. One, of course, is what you said, to go ahead and simply take out the 20000 cash in the uh, universal life policy and look for another policy. I wouldn't do the first step until you had done the second step. In other words, I definitely wouldn't let go of the one until you've been approved on the other. And then, first of all, you need to find out, are, are you going to get a preliminary quotation of uh, of of more insurance for the same amount of premium? If you're not, then you're not ahead of the game. You see what I'm saying? Yes, sir. Uh, I would say, and, and again, it's real hard here at the radio station, if you'll call my office during the week, Uh, Linda can set up an appointment. I can walk you through this much more in depth with a computer and so on. But for quick little numbers, if you needed to have, if she needed to have 30,000 a year income, then that's after taxes are taken out. So you would take the 30,000 and divide that by maybe, oh, 70%. And that means maybe she needs $42,000 before taxes are taken out. And then if you've got, then the question is, well, how much would you need to have to produce forty-two thousand a year? Uh, you might divide that, say, by seven percent, and say so you might need about five hundred thousand dollars, five or six hundred thousand dollars total investments to produce forty-two thousand a year income. You see the way I'm going? Yes, sir. Uh, then you say, well, I've got two hundred thousand of investments, so I might need another three hundred thousand or four hundred thousand of insurance. And what's the cheapest insurance I can get? The The first part of the equation is the living expenses. We need to do a needs analysis of your wife to find out what her needs would be to maintain her lifestyle at your death and then start working backwards from there. All uh, right? Yeah. If the other way to go is, if indeed the insurance is too high to get the amount of insurance that you need to cover her properly... You could, when you collapse the first policy, you could use the 20000 to prepay some of the premium cost on the term policy if, if term would be cheaper for you. Yes. And that's, that's sort of the way that I would approach it. It's too tricky a question just to say, cash it in and get the $20,000 and and invest it because uh, it looks a little delicate. But I, I hope I've given you a little direction yeah, on yeah, how to yeah, approach real, it. Yeah, I've, that's real good. It's, uh, the whole thing starts with her needs.
4: Right, and probably you want to just make sure that it's all coordinated, right, Doug? So that all of their income and, well, just all of the needs are met.
1: Yeah, I'd like to look at all of the assets, all the income, uh, and then do a needs analysis on what she would need.
4: Yeah, right. Okay. write your questions down, Freddie, and our yes, number in yes, Raleigh.
5: That's, uh, yeah, that's very good. I really appreciate it. Yes,
4: sir. Our number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's USA 7000. I've got that. All right. Take care. Thanks Thanks for calling. You take care.
1: Online tools. These online tools are promising to tell you whether you've saved enough. Big question is, do the online tools deliver? And I will tell you, no matter how much money we may be saving for retirement, my experience says that one nagging question in the client's mind still lingers, is it going to be enough? And so, enter these new online calculation tools. They're calculators is what they are. And
2: these calculators rely on answers to questions that often are impossible to know in advance. (laughs) (laughs) And if the numbers you plug in turn out to be off-base, the numbers that come out will be too. And bad numbers could translate into you having a lot less money than you expected.
1: Back in the eighties, we used to uh, have this little phrase that I remember. Some uh, uh, computer geeks in those days would tell me about it called Geico. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they would say, "Oh, garbage in, garbage out. You better be very careful. What, you, what are, you, what are your assumptions that you're putting in?" And I think that's what you're saying, Deborah. I
2: really, yeah. yeah I,
1: this is this is a Geico. This is a garbage in, garbage out. You got to be very careful. And I'll give you an example. Okay. Let's take a 45 year old who has a hundred thousand dollars. All right. In annual income? That's his income. Okay. He's got $250,000 in savings. All right. He's preparing to retire at age 65, okay. and he's saving 12000 a year, and his ins- assumption is that investments are going to grow at 8% a year. Okay. Well, one of these calculators says that he's going to end up with $5,600 a month in income, retirement income. Okay, but what if? <laughs> what if only 6%? <laughs> Suddenly $4,600 a month. Big difference. Yeah. So, what are you gonna use? You're gonna use a 6% assumption or you're gonna use an 8% assumption? Right. And that is the Geico problem yeah. garbage in, garbage out. You cannot go ahead and just use a calculator to, to, to plug your life in. And I would say yeah, uh, ha- ought to be a little careful. And not get smug if the calculator churns out for you a real rosy scenario. Yeah,
2: that might be the other. the, The other huge caution is, well, let's say you don't realize that garbage in, garbage out could be actually telling you, hey, you're doing great. You got plenty of money. Right. So what can these calculators not
1: do? Well, they can't predict the future. And that's the biggest problem. They're not able to predict the future. So you have to at least look at, I would say, five or six different types of data or assumptions to put in. And then I uh, have someone such as myself or some other certified financial planner who is a, a fee-based financial planner. Have them deal with what are you expecting your Social Security to be.
2: Okay, so That's, here we need to plug in the right numbers. First one is going to be Social Security
1: income. And we need to plug it in with both a six age 62 or age 66, 66. assumption. Okay, all right. all right. Then we need number two. We need to know what are your expected Current savings, what we call your pay-yourself-first money.
2: Okay, so that would really be what I've already saved and what I'm planning to save on a monthly basis. Right. Okay, all right. And the the next thing that I need to be able to plug in? Yeah, the
1: next thing to deal with in terms of plugging in are your living expenses. Now, I will tell you that the standard rule of, well, let's just take a rule of thumb of 75% to 80% of my pre-retirement income will be my living expenses that is plain garbage. I mean, that means that a client who happens to be making uh, $500,000 a year... <laughs> it's
2: just going to all of a sudden go, nah. <laughs> yeah,
1: he, he needs 400000 a year to live on. Come on. that's Right, not, you know, right, right. That, the, those what are nonsense was, right. What no. you were
2: spending is usually right. what you should... Yeah, we, we need to analyze expense. the
1: living expenses. Yeah. Really your real living expenses. And that's going to be the third thing.
4: Exactly. And then the fourth um, item is windfall income not every calculator asks whether you'll be getting a lump sum from the sale of a home or from inheritance right so if you can provide an accurate answer That could refine your calculation. And you know, our real
2: life experience, Linda and I this week were working with a client who we knew that they uh, were projecting a commission check to be coming in. And they knew that that was going to be that windfall. So windfalls can be even like if you're in a commission-based business and you know that you're going to get another little paycheck, that should be uh, a part of the computation.
1: The other uh, um, assumption to plug in and to be careful with is life expectancy. Don't just, you know, many times, I don't know why it is with clients. Sometimes I'll ask them as they're sitting in my office, well, what should we use for your life expectancy? And they're 65, 68 years old. And they say, well, I don't know, maybe 80, 85. But, you know. <laughs> Suppose you live to be 95. Right. Suppose right. in other words, we've got to go ahead and be realistic on life expectancy assumptions.
2: And I'd say inflation is another thing you got you you need to be able to plug in to get the numbers right. Oh, inflation. Very
1: important. You know, the cost of living going up over the life of your over your retirement years.
2: Right, the difference between using a 2% inflation rate or a 3% inflation rate, it might skew those numbers. What's the last thing, Linda?
4: the rate of return many many of these calculators assume that your investments will gain 6 or 7% a year before inflation and that may be too high particularly if your retirement savings are invested conservatively so i guess bottom line is a
2: calculator is a nice way to begin but it's definitely not an answer and it definitely doesn't replace what we do on a weekly basis, meeting with clients, helping people
4: like yourself who might be listening on how to best know whether or not you're prepared for retirement. It is very important to look at your own personal situation. You may go out with your friends and have dinner and have, go to the beach and do all these kind of things, but at the end of the day, you need to get serious. And if you haven't addressed your financial planning issues, maybe now's the time. Maybe you need to write down the list of issues and concerns that you have that are still looming over you and that you think about these things when you lay your head on your pillow every mm-hmm. night. Mm-hmm. Or maybe while you're driving to your next appointment, mm-hmm. you're still worrying, how come I haven't made those choices about where my 401k investments are? Or right. I haven't drawn up a will yet. Right. Or maybe you're in the middle of a a potential divorce. Right. And there are some issues about beneficiaries and you need to make changes. So all those issues are very important. And it's important to work with a fee-based financial planner that can assist you, a certified financial planner.
1: A lot of clients have asked me through the years, where does most of their fee go? as they pay us at Lewis Financial. And it is in this area, most of it goes to, it's not a a software that we use as much as a customized, personalized database that is not just subject to GEICO, we build this database that includes everything on the client in the client's world: That's right. their living expenses, their investments, their income, all of these things. And then we are continually massaging and changing and adjusting the assumptions on a year-by-year basis for the clients mm-hmm. because there are always changes in life. There's always and changes. We only have
4: today; we don't have tomorrow. That's right. That's right. You know, I in the last two weeks it's been difficult because. Three very dear people have passed away. Mm -hmm. One was 20, one was 30, and one was 74. Wow. So, you know, we just, we only have today. We don't have tomorrow. Right. So, if you have questions, work with a certified financial planner and get your answers to your questions.
0: If you'd like to get some answers to your questions, call Doug or Deborah Lewis at 919 870 7000. That's 919-USA-7000.
1: Let's take another caller. Mary, this is Doug Lewis, certified financial planner. How can I help you?
7: Yes, I was basically wondering if you could explain a living trust.
1: Well, tell me a little bit about yourself, Mary. How old are you?
7: Well, the question is not for me. It's actually for my father-in-law.
1: How old is he?
7: Uh, 78.
1: He's 78. And is he married or single? He's single. He's single. What's the size of his estate?
7: Uh, There's a problem with that. He had a stroke. He was living by himself, and he was very self-sufficient. He can't recognize people and things like that. So his children went in to try and figure out how he was financially, and he's been saving for a long time. Uh He lives very, very modestly. Mm -hmm. And I think they had said somewhere around $700,000.
1: Now, he no longer is competent with his senses. Is that the, the condition?
7: Most of the time.
1: Well... And you're considering the question of, is a living trust suitable for him? Yes. Well, I don't think that you could get a living trust for him because a living trust is an arrangement set up by the individual. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. A living trust, a revocable living trust has a number of wonderful benefits. Uh, A living trust will minimize administration and probate costs arising at death since the property is titled in the name of the trust and it avoids probate. And a revocable living trust also allows flexibility on the part of the trustee. The trustee is usually the person who sets it up, although it can be a child or, or another person. Uh, the person who sets it up transfers his assets into the trust and identifies and names the trustee. And then since it's revocable, the person who sets it up can make any changes in the trust agreement anytime they wish. That's why it's called a revocable living trust. And the living trust avoids publicity with respect to the transfer of property because details are not made as a matter of public record after a person dies. And one of the biggest uh, um, advantages of the revocable living trust is that it avoids the necessity of a court-supervised conservatorship in the event of a physical or mental incompetence, but you, you got to do that beforehand. In other words, when you set up a revocable living trust, you're really planning for what if something happens to me? If it does, then you've named a subsequent trustee who follows you, and that keeps... Children from coming in and messing things up, and all the things you're saying.
4: Yeah. Did anybody have any power of attorney for his affairs? Or
7: I'm not sure. Uh, one of his daughters can write checks in his name. Does that mean? No. So.
1: Well, there probably either there was a power of attorney, or there was a, or he had her as joint ownership on the uh, on the account. But a revocable living trust is set up while a person is competent, in, and and it and it prepares for the day when. Suppose something happens and they're not competent, if indeed the doctor would agree that he was competent, you could with the help of an attorney establish a revocable living trust, go to him and if this was his desire while he was competent in in, in moments of lucidity, he could then go ahead and uh and sign a, a trust naming either you or your or, or your husband as trustee and so forth uh, that's a matter of legal um uh, advice, And I can't give you legal advice, so I, can't, I can only say that I do know of cases where that has happened. But it would depend on someone testifying that he is, abs- that he is competent at the time that he establishes his trust. The whole key is going to be competence, what he can set up now. And the next question is going to be who does the court say uh, has control over his assets right now? And that's just not someone that walks in and says, I'll take control, unless he's given control to someone.
4: And if you have further questions, call the office in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling, Mary. Bye-bye. Take care.
1: Well, that's all the Money Matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week, and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake.
5: You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug and Linda in Raleigh at 872-7000. That's USA-7000. Listen again next Sunday at 6.05 for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis on 680-WPTF.